Hey, uh, let's pray. And then we're actually, actually, no, first of all, Paul, there's that one that had 945 on there. Put that up there. This is just another quick thing to remind people of. Some people, there, there's a handful of us that gather at 945 in the morning in this room over there just to pray. If we pray for 15 minutes. Uh, we simply pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out among us this morning. So if you want to join us, you don't have to sign up or anything. We just, we're just back in that room, 15 minutes, 945 on Sunday mornings. And the essence of our prayer is, you know, Jesus, pour out your spirit on us. And we pray, we don't pray for you by name, but we pray for the people who come here, which would be you and us and me. We pray that God would actually work in our lives and that it would, not, it would be more than just a routine uh, ritual morning. So anybody's welcome to join us. There's a handful of us that pray in there now. Um, but uh, I just thought I'd let it be known that if anybody else wants to join us, you're welcome to join us any Sunday you want to. So. All right, now let's pray, and then we'll look into God's Word. God, we, we're grateful uh, that you work in our lives. And just as I mentioned, that our prayer before the service this morning, and even now, is that you pour out your Spirit on us. You pour out your Spirit on every uh, woman and man up here. You pour out your Spirit on every girl and boy downstairs. Um, we don't simply want to go through motions. We don't simply want to um, try to figure out how to become better people, so to speak. We want to see what you can do in our lives. Uh, and we want to know that your Holy Spirit is active, bringing about change in our lives that only your Spirit can do. That's why we come here, Jesus. We come here because we believe there's changes only you can do. So would you, Jesus... Even as I'm speaking, Jesus, would you, so to speak, walk through the rows and pour out your Spirit on every single person here this morning? And would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear whatever you're saying to us? And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, here's the category. Everyone's probably these little quizzes. The category here is going to church, all right? Here's the first question. According to a recently released Gallup poll, it was actually released three weeks ago, which state has the highest percentage of people who say they attend church weekly, which, according to Gallup, makes them a very religious state? All right, A, Alabama, B, Mississippi, C, New York, D, North Dakota, E, Texas. Shout out what you think the answer is. Correct answer is actually B, Mississippi. You know, go back. Yeah, go back. I didn't, I didn't have a separate slide. It's B. Actually, the real correct answer is Utah, because they can fit with, uh, with all the Mormon church there. I'm just trying to get us to think about kind of the Protestant Christian churches, all right? So Mississippi, and actually most of the first five in the list are southern states. So maybe talks, that says more about the religious culture of that, uh, that part of the country. Next one. According to the same Gallup poll, which state has the lowest percentage of people who say they attend church weekly? I was going to put Kentucky on there since we all don't like Kentucky, but I just didn't think of that. I don't want to make that a problem there. A, Alaska, B, New Hampshire, C, New York, D, Vermont, or E, Wisconsin? Okay, I heard it already. Vermont. Vermont has, uh, actually, Mississippi, 47% of the people in Mississippi say they go to church every week. Vermont, 17% say they go to church every week, all right? Three. Now here's a question. So if more people go to church in Mississippi than they do in Vermont, almost by a three-to-one margin, does that, and if they're more religious there, shouldn't Mississippians have a better quality of life? Shouldn't that be more joyful, loving, and courageous? 
Or is there something vastly different from religious habits and the life of Jesus? I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, is the Spirit of God active, more active in Mississippi than it is in Vermont? Like by, th- by factor of three. I think we all know what I'm getting at. Probably not because I'm not saying you shouldn't go to church, but I'm wondering how much we th- value religious activity and maybe we don't, shouldn't value it as much as we do. And we're going to look at some of that this morning. That's why we're doing this question here. So just a question. Next one. Where do Hoosiers rank in the go to church every week poll? And what percentage of Hoosiers attend church weekly? Are we number six, number nine, number 15, number 26, or number 32? Shout it out. What do you think? Hoosiers, C, number 15. 35% of people from Indiana would say they attend church every week. Now, as I wrote this question, I thought some of you are probably thinking, okay, Hoosiers ranking percentage. Are we going to get into the NCA this year? I don't know, just wondering. Um, so we, don't have, we, won't, we won't put percentages up for that. All right, next question, next slide. In the same how often do you attend church Gallup poll, what percentage of Hoosiers say they seldom or never go to church? These are your neighbors. These are my neighbors. These are your coworkers. These are your roommates. What percentage of Hoosiers say they seldom or never go to church? A, 12%, B, 24, C, 35, D, 42, E, 67. So what do you think? Sound it out. Correct answer is actually D, 42% of your neighbors, your friends, maybe your family, maybe your roommates, maybe your coworkers, say they seldom or never go to church. This was in a poll for at least three weeks ago. And I'm guessing in Bloomington it may even be higher. All right, we're not really part of Indiana. We're really part of the East Coast. I don't know if you guys knew that, but that's Bloomington. So here's the question. Why do they seldom or never go to church? Four out of ten people that you know, of your neighbors, of your friends and your coworkers, seldom or never go to church. Is the problem the church? Is the problem the message of Jesus? Is the problem they're just bad people and hard-hearted and going to hell anyway, so we shouldn't care? Next, next one. A couple more. In a recent Pew Research Center poll, this one was released about a year ago. This is kind of the same vein. What percentage of American Christians, or Americans, describe themselves as atheists or agnostics? Would I do something wrong? What percentage of Americans? Oh, E, yeah. E, 666%. And those people that are really kind of evil. Anyway. Uh, 6, 9, 16, or 19%. Answer is, anybody? A, 6% would say they are atheists. Agnostic. Agnostic simply means, uh, it's a Greek for don't know. I don't know about God. I don't know. So 6%. Next one. According to the same Pew Research poll, what percentage of Americans describe their religious affiliation as nothing in particular? And they said the pollsters call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. What percentage of Americans would say they have nothing in particular in terms of religious, religious affiliation? 8, 11, 14, 22, 27. Correct answer, and this one is... C, 14%. I think it's the last one, next one. Those describing their religious affiliation as nothing in particular, that 14%, were then asked, are you looking for a religion that would be right for you? So this is of that group that said, I don't have no religion in particular, I don't go to church. I'm not. What percentage of them, when they were asked, are you looking for something to be right for you? What percentage of them said they're looking? 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50? What do you think? Think of people you know that don't go to church that would say they're not religious. They don't, they don't have any affiliation. 
What percentage of those people are actually looking for something larger religion to give meaning to their life? Say that out loud. What do you think? Anybody? Correct answer. Go to the next slide. The correct answer is actually 10%. Go to the next slide, Paul. Sit. Next slide. We got one. Is there a next slide? Okay. Actually, 88% of those people said they are not looking. They don't care. They're not looking. Um, 10 are looking. Two don't know whether they're looking or not. Two percent don't know. I don't. They don't really think much about it. But eighty-eight percent of people who don't go to church, who don't have an don't have any affiliation, they aren't looking. And here's the question I ask. Go to the next slide. Why are so many not looking? Why are so many in Indiana don't go to church at all, seldom or never? Why are so many not looking? Again, we can assume, well, they're just hard-hearted people that, you know, sorry for them. Or should we kind of wonder, are, is the church, are we the church, followers of Jesus, are we communicating what Jesus really is all about? Are we communicating something that's more religious in nature, kind of religious culture that really has no appeal to the average American, and frankly may have no appeal to some of us? So that's just what I need to think about are we getting a clear, are we giving, does the church in America, are you and I in our lives, are we giving a clear picture of Jesus? What I've done the last few weeks, not last week because we were all home with the snow, is doing a series called Face to Face with Jesus and I've been looking at conversations Jesus had, specific conversations that he had with people in some of the New Testament Gospels. And the point is, let's get a clear picture of what Jesus said he was about what he came to do, because I wonder if maybe sometimes what the, what's communicated by the church at large, and maybe even our lives, becomes this religious kind of message that would understandably have no appeal to those people who aren't looking, who, who are seldom or never go. So in order to do this today, we're going to actually look at two different conversations, but the first, uh, both from the book of John, and they're both quite different. Because we're going to start off with Nicodemus, then we're going to go in a second after Nicodemus to the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. So we're starting off with Nicodemus, who the Bible says was a Pharisee, which was one of the religious teachers. So he would be in the very religious category. Nicodemus lived in Mississippi, okay? Very religious. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's one of these people who not only went to church every week, but he did everything right every week. He did all the religious things right. So if anybody was religious, Nicodemus was, because he was a Pharisee, he was a teacher of the law, he was esteemed among his peers. So this is how Jesus interacts with a very religious person. All right? Here's what the Bible says. There's a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening... He came to speak with Jesus. Some people think he came after dark because he was somewhat concerned about what his peers, most of whom didn't like Jesus, and some even were hostile to Jesus, they would think. So Nicodemus has thought that he went because he just didn't want to be seen. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So Nicodemus, to some degree, has a little bit of maybe a warm heart toward Jesus. He says, it's evident that God's with you. And Jesus replied, so you think Nicodemus was even trying to kind of 
win kind of friendship with Jesus or something. And Jesus' reply was simply this, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Kind of blunt. And Nicodemus is probably thinking, I didn't, didn't even ask that question, but, but Jesus said, I'm telling you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is telling a religious, very religious person, they're missing something. So right away, you can almost feel a little bit of the tension. Nicodemus isn't hostile, but there's a little bit of tension already that Jesus introduced into the conversation. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can... Hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. So Jesus is talking to this religious leader who knows the Bible, the then-known Bible, which was the Old Testament, in and out, backwards and forwards. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. There's something more happening in the invisible world that needs to happen in you, Nicodemus, because right now you are not seeing, you're not going to be the kind of person who connects with God in the way that you're, that you're meant to. So Jesus, again, blunt, but kind, but blunt. And then Nicodemus says, how are these things possible? I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. You're saying I have to be born again, and I don't know what that means. And then Jesus replies, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and we have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake, bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, if you don't know that reference, there's a place in the Old Testament where Moses and the Jewish people had on their way out from Egypt to the Promised Land, they had done some, given themselves over to some stupid idolatry on a certain day or on a certain practice, and got God angry at them. And they were all, uh, God sent snakes among them, and they were dying. And then there was a, God told Moses to make this bronze snake to put on a pole. And if they would look at the snake on the pole, anybody who looked at the snake on a pole would be healed. Now, it's interesting, too, if you see sometimes a symbol today for a pharmacy, some medical symbols, you'll see a snake on a pole, which is where that comes from. It comes from the book of comes from the Pentateuch, all right? So Jesus is telling, so Nicodemus knew this story, and Jesus said, so as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about himself, although Nicodemus had no idea that he was meaning the cross. So that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. So here Jesus is telling this respected religious leader, this is how you have eternal life. And we'll talk about that phrase in a second, what eternal life means. But so this is Jesus' conversation with a very religious person. He's clearly communicated to Nicodemus, here's the way to enter into the, to the kingdom of God and to know God and to be connected with God and to have a new kind of heart and life. But Nicodemus, you're going, you're, they're going the wrong way. Very religious leader. All right? Now, hold on to that one. And now we'll switch to another story. Because these stories, I don't believe, were put back to back coincidentally. Because John 3 is about Nicodemus, a very religious person. John 4, we're going to see Jesus interacting with somebody who is the opposite of very religious. As a matter of fact, she's a quite immoral, bad person. All right? So John chapter 4, 
Jesus has a conversation with a woman from Samaria. Let me give you a little background here. Samaria, Samaria was a part of the Israel country, the, the geography, but the Samaritans were known as half-breeds because generations ago when Israel had been you know, sent in exile to Babylon because the Babylonians had you know, destroyed Jerusalem, some of the Jewish people stayed around, were allowed to stay, and they kind of were Jewish, but then they started kind of buying into the pagan beliefs of the Babylonians, and they kind of mixed their religion all up so it wasn't Judaism in its purest form anymore. It was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, still talked about God, still believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, but not the rest of the Old Testament. They believe you should worship in this city, not in Jerusalem. So it was just different, significantly different. And, and, and the Jews, if you were a good religious Jew, you did not associate with Samaritans. They were considered not only half-breeds, they were considered unclean, dirty, or whatever. Not only that, this is a woman and a Jewish man would never interact with a Jewish woman or uh, any woman in private that wasn't his wife. So, and we'll find out this woman wasn't, all, wasn't an upstanding citizen either. So it's an interesting story here too. But this is another conversation Jesus has with someone else about what it means to know God. All right? This is John 4. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. said, uh, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman, which she's not given a name, so we don't know, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. So here's Jesus alone with a Samaritan woman, which she was breaking all kinds of religious rules. So Jesus was losing points in the very religious category. The fact this woman came at noon and they were alone means the woman didn't come when the rest of the women in town came to get water, which means that either she had some clear sense that she didn't belong with other women or she was embarrassed or she was an outcast, which we'll find out she was. So this woman is like on all the outcast lists. She has all kinds of bad points against her religiously. And Jesus sits down and asks her to give him some water out of the well. So there's all, again, there's some weird cultural tension going on here. <laughs> And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And then Jesus replies, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you go to get this living water? So she, like Nicodemus, didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Probably like you and me sometimes, when you read things about Jesus in the Gospels, you're like, I don't get what he's trying to say there. Okay, Nicodemus felt that way. The Samaritan woman felt that way. And there's times where it's like, I, I, I don't know what he means. That's what she's saying here, just like Nicodemus. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. I'm going to comment again right there. He talks about eternal life to this Samaritan woman, just like he talked to eternal life with Nicodemus. Both had a deep need for that. Totally different people. Very religious person. Somebody who was not spiritual or religious at all. 
Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. And then Jesus, this next part of the conversation is really kind of priceless if you think about it. Jesus says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. Like, boom, boom, gotcha. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Now, interesting, kind of what Nicodemus said to Jesus. You must be sent from God because of all the miracles you're doing. So two vastly different people having the same experience of Jesus. You must be from God. You confuse me, but I'm intrigued by what you're saying. So tell me why it is that you Jews insist on Jerusalem as the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. So what she's really doing is throwing Jesus a, a, a theological smokescreen. It's almost like if Jesus were to say, ask you to do something, and you turn around and ask and say, well, Jesus, I don't know about this anyway. It's just a smokescreen. She, she's, she's avoiding the question. And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And then later on, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus simply says to her, that's me. I'm the Messiah. So here you have two significantly different conversations. And perhaps you might see yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. Maybe you would say, I, I'm, I think I'm a pretty religious person. I go through some of the religious behaviors. I go to church regularly, or I do these things regularly, or I pray, or I try to do this. And then there's others. Some of you may think, well, I'm kind of probably like the Samaritan woman. I've kind of stumbled and fall, fell, fall, fallen down quite a few times, and I don't really know. I'm not really sure I fit in anymore because I've done a lot of bad things. Now, not only you might fit those categories, but your neighbors do. That 42% of your neighbors or whatever, actually, you might have neighbors that fall into the very religious category, that go to church regularly, but maybe don't connect with Jesus. And you might think, well, that sounds kind of odd to say it that way. No, it, but that's, let's think about that. If Nicodemus was very religious, he wasn't connecting with the true spirit of God, isn't it possible that there's a, a lot of our friends and neighbors that might in the same boat? Or there might be like the Samaritan woman. You might have friends or neighbors that are like the Samaritan woman. They don't, they don't go to church, they don't consider themselves religious, and they aren't even looking because in a lot of cases, they may just be bad people. I, I had a professor once, when I, years ago, when I was a graduate student at IU, I remember at, inviting a professor to come to church one time. And he said, well, I, you wouldn't want me to come. And I said, well, why is that? This was at a different church, no, different church in town. He said, well, if I came, I really believe the building might collapse because I've done a lot of bad things. Like, really? He goes, no, I, you don't want me to come to your church. It, wouldn't be, it would not be good for your church to be to walk in the building. I mean, he really believed that, the way he said it. So he was kind of a Samaritan woman with a Ph.D. All right. So what do we make of all this, these conversations Jesus had? How does that fit into our thinking about how Jesus interacts with people? And how do we understand a clearer picture of the real Jesus and his real message so that maybe what we communicate to our friends and neighbors might make some people start thinking about giving Jesus a chance? Not, I'm not saying they should give the church a chance. Well, our message is about Jesus. It's not that we're not trying to sell the church to people, although I believe the church is something Jesus believes in it's his bride here's four, here's three things i want to highlight go to the next slide whether it's nicodemus samaritan woman or you or me 
you can count on Jesus to be disruptively honest with you. He was pretty disruptive with Nicodemus when right away Nicodemus is trying to kind of warm up and say, hey, we know you do a lot of miracles, you must be from God. And Jesus says, no, you must be born again. Uh, Samaritan woman, Jesus says, hey, by the way, you had five husbands and now you're living with somebody that's not your husband. And Jesus isn't doing this to embarrass either one of them. But Jesus has a unique way with you or with me to being disruptively honest when we don't expect it. So don't assume that when you go to Jesus, which I will and you will do at times when you're praying for something or asking for something, that what you hear back is something Jesus is trying to get your attention about in your own life. Because he loves to be disruptively honest with us. He is not content with you or I being religious people. I've told you before about a time where I was going through religious motions of praying one morning and doing my quiet time and checking off all my religious things. And I was reading, I don't know what book of the Bible I was reading, but I was being very religious. And all I heard from Jesus that morning was he was challenging me on a homework assignment that I had cheated on. I didn't want to hear that because I wanted to talk about, I wanted to be religious. I was doing quite good being religious that morning and Jesus wouldn't let me alone. And that's what he's like. He's very disruptively honest with the Samaritan woman, with the Nicodemus. There's a wide spectrum. You fit in there somewhere like I do. So Jesus is really good and you can count on him to be very disruptively honest with you for your well-being. Second thing that's true about both of these, quite different people but similar things, Jesus is offering you an eternal kind of life. What's interesting I noticed in both of these passages, Nicodemus and Samaritan woman couldn't have been farther apart from each other in terms of how the culture of those days viewed them. But the offer of Jesus to both of them was, he used the term, eternal life. He was offering that to both of them. The assumption was neither one of them had what he was talking about. Now, I've readapted the word up there, and I've called it eternal kind of life because I'm wondering if maybe at times what we communicate, what the church communicates about the message of Jesus needs to be kind of clarified because I think we, un, I think we make it way simplistic. Jesus is not telling Nicodemus. He's not saying, uh, Nicodemus, by the way, unless you be born again, you're not going to go to heaven after you die. You're going to go to hell. He's not telling the Samaritan woman, hey, I've got living water for you, and if you drink this living water, you'll go to heaven after you die, and you won't go to hell. See, we think eternal life, we've reduced eternal life, that phrase, which is not, it's, it's, a, it's a simplistic, somewhat inaccurate view of what Jesus meant. We've reduced it to life after you die in heaven. But the concept of eternal life as John used it and as Jesus used it in this gospel is more of an eternal kind of life. It's a life now that's lived with a largeness of, of, of how we live life. It's uh, what one author called it. It's a life for the ages. It's a life that is life. It's a life that's full of joy. It's a life that's full of abnormal love, joy, and courage. That's an eternal kind of life. You might say that Mother Teresa, while she was on earth, lived an eternal kind of life. Other people, other men and women throughout the centuries who have followed, followed Jesus, it's about now. It's not about just about then. So Jesus' promise to Nicodemus is, you, you, if you let yourself 
hand over your heart to Jesus and let your heart be born again by the Holy Spirit, you will begin to experience a kind of life now that has an eternal perspective where the way you think about success, your future, will totally be radically different, and you will start to grow in the kind of person who will have an abnormal level of love, joy, and courage. He wasn't talking. Now, granted, heaven after we die. If you're loving God in this life, of course you're going to be with God in the next life. If you're rejecting God in this life, of course you're not going to be with God in the next life. But that was not the message of Jesus. He was not simply selling fire insurance. Same way with the woman at the well. He was telling her, what I'm offering you, he used the term, it's water that bubbles up inside of you and kind of gushes out of you. He's not talking about life in heaven after you die. He's talking about a quality of life now that comes from deep in your soul, that, comes, that out of you comes joy and peace and courage and love and gentleness and patience. That's what he's talking about. And that's the offer of Jesus has to us. That's the offer that Jesus has to the 42% of people in Indiana that don't go to church every week. That's the offer that Jesus has to those people who aren't affiliated who say they're not even looking. That's the offer of Jesus. The offer of Jesus is not, come follow me, and I'll give you all kinds of rules and tell you to follow them, and they'll be oppressive and you'll hate it. The message of Jesus is not, come follow me, and you'll vote Republican, and we'll turn this country around. All right, the message of Jesus is not, come follow me, and I'll get you in line. The message of Jesus is not, come follow me, and you'll become a really good church person. You'll go all through all the motions, and you'll do all these things really good, and you'll pray, and you'll give money, and you'll attend church regularly, and you'll sing really loud. Jesus' message is, come follow me, and you will have a kind of life, an eternal kind of life now, because I'll be in you, my spirit will be in you, and you will have a kind of life now that will have a overflowing effect on those around you, and you'll begin to change the world in the way that my Father, God, intended to happen. That's the message of Jesus. It's setting people free. It's releasing people from bondage. It's healing. It's joy. It's hope. That's the message that Jesus wants the church to have. And again, I'm wondering with these people who say they're not looking and they're not interested, they don't go to church. I'm wondering if that's the message they're rejecting. My guess is they're rejecting the message of American, what I'll call American churchianity. They just don't want, they have no desire for the church because their experience of the church is anything but what they understand of Jesus. Last thing. You're broken, you need Jesus, everybody does. And I'm saying that because imagine if you're Nicodemus. You're Mr. Religion. You do everything right. You behave well. You give money. You know the Bible in and out. You go to church whenever the doors are open. You, you behave according to the law. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, but there's still something missing in your life. You're still broken. You need Jesus. You need, Jesus is saying you need this relationship with me. You need a spiritual rebirth. And in some sense, Nicodemus probably was and could have been somewhat offended. Like, oh, you're telling me I need something more? Look at all the things. Look at all the good marks I have. And we know from what happens later in the Gospels, Nicodemus must have responded to Jesus' message because when Jesus died and was buried in the tomb, Nicodemus was one of the ones who helped prepare his body. So our assumption is Nicodemus, and actually when Jesus was arrested, Nicodemus was the one who kept telling his 
colleagues in the Pharisee court, kangaroo court, wait a minute, wait a minute, we can't call this guy guilty until we give him a fair trial. He was trying to fight for Jesus. So we get the sense that Nicodemus must have responded to this blunt yet kind challenge of Jesus that you need something more than religious habits. Same thing he told this Samaritan woman when he points out to her, you know, the life you've been trying, trying to get fulfillment through, in that case, relationships and probably sex, that's not giving you the life you've always wanted, is it? That's really what Jesus is saying to the woman at the well. You're, and she knew she was broken. And she's, he's saying, there's more to life, and if you listen to me and trust me, I will show you how to find it. That's, what, that's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. Think of people you know in Bloomington that you would say are really far from God. Maybe neighbors, friends, or maybe just a stereotypical group. Maybe it's the partying crowd. Maybe it's whatever. Maybe it's just people you know that are way, way into what you would call very non-religious behavior. Who's to say that they could be this close to Jesus if they had a chance to hear what Jesus had to say? And maybe, maybe God wants to use you or me to communicate to them. I'm not trying to put force or pressure on anybody. Who's to say that maybe the clear, hearing the clear message of what Jesus came um, is something that God may be asking you or me to do sometime in the future with some of our friends, neighbors, co-workers, and some of those bad people. All right? Last thing, I'll go back to this, and then we'll be done here. This is, uh, I talked about the eternal life, and I'm just going to close with this. So Jesus in John chapter 3, what he says to Nicodemus, Son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. What he says to the Samaritan woman, the bad woman, the non-religious woman, the woman who'd made all kinds of mistakes in life, so the water I give becomes the fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So the promise of Jesus, the promise that was part of what he said he wants us to remember when we take communion, he says, do this in remembrance of me. What are we supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember that the promise is an eternal kind of life. The promise is we could be the kind of people that have abnormal levels of joy, courage, love, peace, forgiveness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We can be those kind of people if we're willing to trust him and follow what he asks us to do, and do whatever he tells us to do. Whether you think you're a Nicodemus kind of religious person, or whether you think you're a person that God probably won't give a dime to because you've done so many bad things, both spectrums have equal access to Jesus if you simply are willing to kind of respond to him. And for those of us, those of you who maybe have followed Jesus for a number of years, the promise is still the same. Because none of us have ever fully grown up into the kind of life Jesus has promised us. So uh, as we take communion today, again, it's, I've said this before, it's a ritual, it's a routine, it can become that way, but there's always meaning. The meaning is as you take this bread and the grape juice into your body, no, it doesn't become magically transformed into some kind of supernatural substance that zaps your inside, but it's your soul telling your body to take in something that you know will have is a symbolic and a mystical effect on you, which is, I want more of the Spirit in me that Jesus says is fresh bubbling spring that gives me the life I've always wanted as a follower of Jesus. That's what, the, that's what we do here. So as, uh, as we do at Exodus, anybody's welcome to take communion uh, as long as you would say you're a follower of Jesus. And uh, 
I also say this, if, you're, if there's some area in your life where you know you are stiff-arming Jesus, I'm not saying if you stumble and fall occasionally, because we all do, we're all sinners, but if there's an area that you are intentionally blocking the work of Jesus in your life, or intentionally being disobedient, it's your, so your benefit not to take. And I've said before, we don't, we don't try to see who's up or down, and we don't try to pigeonhole you or ask you what's going on. That's between you and God at this point. But everybody's welcome. And uh, how we do it is there'll be people up here at the center and the side aisles. And as we, we'll start singing, so the band can come on up, because we're going to start singing here in a minute. As they start singing, you're welcome.